name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudator Jesus Christus in secula. In this secula. is Flanders with the meaning of Catholic. Jesus is King. Welcome to the Monday Morning Man Show with co-hosts Paleocrat and Jake Fowler. Paleocrat, how are you doing? How was your weekend, brother? It was bittersweet, man, because yesterday marked the six-year anniversary of my daughter's death. But I had an awesome present. Somebody came to my house um, named Tim Flanders, and he brought over something from the Wolf Pack, and it was amazing. It was a picture uh, from a friend of mine. Her name is Michael um, Stubalak, and she drew a picture. It was an awesome drawing and came with a letter talking about how my daughter, even though people haven't met her, that that my daughter's life story, her motto is of never give up, keep on smiling, remember we're going to die, so dream bigger thoughts and give it all you've got, those things that I say every show, um, that that's impacted their lives and that they're preparing not only for death, but death so that they can meet her in heaven. And it was awesome. Tim recorded it. <laughs> so there's there's a video on Telegram of me crying <laughs> like so there was that and i also man I, I won't say all the names of the books but i got half of the books i just bought i bought a whole bunch and uh i got half of them uh in the mail uh including saint anselm so i'm really excited about that and uh caritas and primo and that's by dr jared goff he's absolutely amazing good friends with byzantine scotus so um scotus and so uh i'm excited to read that and uh other than that, man, it was a great it was a great weekend. Yesterday, I hung out with some friends, ate a bunch of food, and uh, had a good time. All right, praise the Lord, brother. Yeah, yeah we love you, Pele Crap. We love Sammy, and uh, glad that uh, I could be a, one small part of that. Yeah, man. Um, Jake Fowler, you you just uh, just covered the Fodian schism in your series last week. How did that go? Yeah. And what's next? So I thought it went pretty well. Of course, you know, this is getting into the sort of time period when Catholic and Orthodox opinions on this are going to diverge. So understandably, you know, I, I imagine in the future, as the video kind of disseminates out to the rest of the interwebs, that there will be some uh, more criticism than other episodes, which is all right. Um, I'm not going to be dogmatic about anything the church isn't dogmatic about. So if somebody wants to like Photius as a person, that's fine. I, I don't. Um, somebody asked me actually in the comments, did he repent? And I don't think he did. Uh, I'm not certain. I'm going to have to double check before I say it in an official capacity, but I don't believe so. So, you know, we looked at the, the events that led up to the fourth council of Constantinople. Uh, the next one this week will be, the Fourth Council of Constantinople, and then that 10-year period, and then the Fourth Council of Constantinople, take two. And then I'll pause on history, and we're going to do another series, right? I don't I don't know if I'll... Yeah, I'm not going to reveal the topic just yet. I've said it to a few people, but I'm going to keep it to myself for right now. Sweet. So we have the first eight ecumenical councils in 20 parts, yeah. I think. Tw 21. 
21 parts. 21 parts, right. So imagine the other uh, 13 councils, which we know more about because as time goes on, you know, the documentary evidence increases. Um, I mean, your, your channel is pretty much just going to be all councils all the time. Oh, thank you, Christ Pilled. Well, yeah, well, this is I, I like how you have connected this to our current crisis, w which involves a council. So it's good to go through a lot of this history. So it's uh, most appreciated, of course. Um, <clears throat> so the let's see this week. Welcome to the sixth week after Pentecost. This week we have uh, the feeding of the 4000 was on Sunday. And today we have St. Camillus de Lelis tomorrow St. Vincent de Paul we have St. Jerome Emiliani St. Lawrence Brindisi and on Friday St. Mary Magdalene and on Saturday St. Apollinaris so certainly a, a week packed with saints the uh the eastern appellation of um St. Mary Magdalene is equal to the apostles so she's uh, certainly a significant figure in the early church and uh this week, this really this um, this starting last week was we're having a recognize and resist week on meaning of Catholic of some kind, because uh, this is going to be today. Jake and Paley Crowd are going to respond to the video that I did last week on I think it was Thursday about Benedict and recognize and resist. And then uh, this Thursday, we're having Mike Lewis on meaning of Catholic uh, for conservative trad dialogue between him and myself. That'll be on Thursday. Uh, and then week after this, a uh, week from today, we'll have Eric Ibarra on with his critique of Recognize and Resist. And uh, so it'll be a, a, a packed week of discussing this, uh, Recognize and Resist. So this, this reminds us that um, Meaning of Catholic is not a traditional, per se, apostolate. This, this apostolate is a bunch of lay people attempting to get together and debate things from the the places that we have in common which are our catholic faith but we diverge in various ways on modern controversies that are that are recent and so we this show this whole apostolate is trying to bring people together to debate things and so the motto is uniting Catholics, Catholics against the enemies of Holy Church. And so the idea is that the enemies of the Holy Church are very much uh, our focus. And we need to be able to work out differences and at least agree to disagree so that we can stand together for one common cause. So if you'd like to support us, we do need your support. This is supported by an online guild. We don't run any ads on YouTube. But you can support us at patreon.com slash meaning of Catholic. And we'll have a, we'll have a guild show with all of y'all's comments. Y'all want to comment on this whole discussion on recognize and resist. Uh, you can comment to the guild stream. That'll probably be on Thursday or Friday. I'm not sure yet. So stay tuned for that. So um, do you, I, I guess I'll sort of rehash real quick what I said in the video for five minutes and then um one of y'all can kind of bring out your responses to that <clears throat> so the the idea was um that i tried to bring out was that the document donum veritatis by cardinal rasker in 1990 makes a 
a contrast between a dissenting theologian and a theologian who has difficulties with the magisterial status quo of some kind. And if he can present his argument in a, not in a hostile spirit, but in a sort of a productive spirit, which is challenging the magisterium in some sense. And I, so I'm saying that there is sort of a resistance in some sense of that word, uh, but it's a resistance that's a pious resistance that's uh, presenting to the magisterium something that's uh, of, of piety, but it's a difficulty with what something that's going on with status quo, which could also, the document says that this can become a fruitful dynamic interchange, which actually brings theology forward. And in particular, I illustrated that Vatican II itself is sort of an example of that because there were theologians before the council who were suspected or silenced or disciplined who were essentially resisting the status quo and their efforts essentially also ultimately became Vatican II. And then I give three particular examples of a recognize and resist model, which had been confirmed by the popes, various popes, Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict XVI, uh, who all confirmed in partic particular ways in which there was some form of a resistance, some form of a a recognition, but a fruitful interchange between theologians or or lay people or whatever it may be, um, that was a fruitful thing. So in that, I I certainly want to concede that there are those among the R and R camp, and uh, I I include myself in this because I I don't I'm not confident that I've always um, that I've always followed these ideals. I think, um, but there there are people within the R&R camp who do not speak with piety or they don't speak in a productive way and they rather promote impiety uh, and hatred for the Holy Father or for the various hierarchical offices. And that's a it's sort of a just a difficult line to walk. And uh, I don't think I've always been successful in that. And um I, I want to concede that, first of all, that that is a problem and we, we want to avoid that. So that's essentially the gist of what I had said last week. Um, Jake or Jeremiah, which of you would like to uh, respond? You can go ahead if you want. Well, I'll, I'll begin. Yeah, I'll start by echoing uh, your caveat that I also have not always done my uh, duty as a layman to be charitable, right? Which isn't just the duty of a layman, but yeah, I, I have often failed in the regard of how to properly approach issues in the church that I take issue with or that I, that I find to be troubling or what have you, right? Um, so let's see, just, just by way of example, we've got John in the comments saying Vatican II is the beginning of sorrows. Okay, fair enough. If that were my position and I were, I'm not trying to call you out, John, this is just a handy example. Um, you could start that conversation with a bunch of friends and then pretty soon, you know, you guys are all bashing Pope Francis for this and that. It's like, mm, I have been guilty of that in the past as well. So, you know, just echoing what Tim was saying. I would like to start by pointing out that Donum Veritatis is written to and for a specific group of people. And that group of people is theologians. So 
uh, it's not as if just anybody is allowed to, you know, let me, let me just blast my opinion all over the internet because look, Ratzinger says that I'm allowed to disagree under these certain situations, right? Even if that were the case, oftentimes we find that the certain conditions that are mentioned, not only in, in Donum Veritatis, but also going back, you know, through the centuries, uh, multiple prior popes and uh, saints have, have dealt with these issues before. And a lot of times what, you, what you'll find is that even in the best case scenario, the conditions that the church has laid out have not been met. And, and the church has laid out insofar as what is a layman to do when he finds himself in disagreement with something or other that the Pope or the bishops have said or the council or what, what have you, right? But back to Donum Veritatis just for a moment. It's written to theologians. And it's written in a way to avoid the phenomenon of dissent that was so prevalent after Vatican II, right? In conversation with a friend of mine recently, um, he remarked that that was really, it didn't get checked as it ought to have been checked, right? Seminary faculties, university faculties, they were just teeming with dissenting theologians, like actual not not oh i don't understand this please explain it to me but no we know what you're saying we think you're wrong and we don't care to be corrected just leave us alone so you could think of like the the late 60s early 70s you've got the land of lakes statement um regarding american universities where they're basically saying you know we have academic freedom bishops you can't tell us what to do anymore and it's just a watershed from there, right? So Donum Veritatis is riding on these waves and trying to correct it. So they're addressing, like I said, a certain subset of people, not Catholics in general, not Catholics interested in theology, but theologians. So if you make your trade doing theology, whether you actually make money off of it or not, I think is a separate question. But if this is... If, if you're trained and it's sort of your occupation, if you will, then Donum Veritatis would apply to you, okay? Um, so under that, uh, with, with that in mind, what do they mean when they say theologian with difficulties or something like that? I've got, let's see, I've got it pulled up in front of me. Um, it's been a while since I've read it all the way through. So paragraph 28, I think, it says the preceding considerations have a particular application to the case of the theologian who might have serious difficulties for reasons which appear to him well-founded in accepting non-irreformable magisterial teaching. Uh, it goes on to list some other things about what to do or not to do. Let's see, let me find my cursor. But so my, yeah, my opening thoughts uh, kind of conclude with let's remember who this is addressed to. And let's remember that, to my knowledge, the, the document doesn't use the term resist because I don't think that Ratzinger in writing it has in mind any sort of resistance. What he has in mind, at least it seems to me, is the theologian who really, really wants what the magisterium says to be true but just doesn't quite get it, doesn't see it, and for that reason can't give assent yet.
so there's a fundamental disposition that, um, okay, I, I do want to submit to this. I would like to go along with what I'm being taught and what the church is, is telling me, uh, but I just don't see it yet. And so I'm not able to give a cent versus someone who says, on the other hand, well, I pretty well understand this and I think it's wrong. So I, I don't think those are the same person. I mean, th th that situation could exist in the same person, but I don't believe Ratzinger's talking about the second one as much as he is the first, right? The guy who says, no, the church is wrong. Um, so I have serious difficulties. And for that reason, I can resist. That doesn't seem to me to be the target audience here, right? He's talking about theologians who in a humble spirit of obedience want to receive from the church rather than have the church conform more to their own ideals. All right. So there's, there's my, my intro. Now, Jake, would you, would you take those three examples that I gave? So first of all, conceding your main point, R remind is, me, uh, remind I mean, me it, which three. Yeah. Well, first of all, your, your main point, which is certainly, uh, I, I can concede that point that this is a document to theologians. So, uh, we have no, as laymen, we have no, uh, uh, we're not theologians here, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but my three examples were, were from theologians, even though I, I, I emphasize the third one was more lay led, even though Joseph Ratzinger as a theologian certainly had a, a role to play there. But we have the, the three examples. Well, the first example is Vatican II itself, because those were theologians mm -hmm. who were resisting the status quo. Um, and you, you don't have to call it resisting, but w whatever you want to call it, it's basically saying, I'm critiquing the status quo. I want to change the status quo. I'm not just seeking to just receive from Rome and do whatever Rome says. I'm actually trying to change Rome. That's what they wanted to do in the 40s and 50s. And they did it at Vatican II. So that would be an example, I would say, of this very thing. But the other examples I gave were the the critique, the Ottaviani intervention, which was in 1969, which critiqued the papally promulgated general instruction of the rebel mm -hmm. missile of 69, which Paul VI received. And then he actually made a correction to it the next year because of this intervention. And then the second one was the resistance of the priests in, especially in the 1990s, of the papal document on the translation of the liturgy, which was response to that was that there was a reversal to Paul VI's document in Liturgium Authenticum in 2001. And then the third example is Simorum Pontificum, which reversed the the suppression of the Latin Mass, which I, I said that that was a lay-led enterprise, and it was lay-led with Una Voce, definitely layman leading that from 1964. But obviously, Joseph Ratzinger was a large theologian in that uh, in that whole a critique of the of the the liturgical reform so would you say that those examples are examples of these this sort of fruitful um i'm not sure what you'd like to call it besides resistance yeah would you say um well i mean critiquing is a fine word i we could we could say resistance and and the three of us can know what we mean but when you start saying recognize and resist out in the general public, people don't know what the three of us mean right this very moment, you know? So that's why I, I avoid the term in general. 
But I mean, you know, charitable criticism, constructive criticism, whatever you want to call it. I would say at the council, though, that's not necessarily the best example because those were all clerics, right? And as far as I know, the R&R position um, isn't really held by a ton of clerics. It seems to me, and I'm willing to be corrected here, that it's mostly a lay trad kind of position. I, 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 you know, I, I always think of certain other talking heads on YouTube uh, who shall remain nameless uh, as the originators of this, this sort of phenomenon, um, at least in its current form. And, you know, I, I, I say Francis is a valid pope because I don't want to be a sede, but I, I pretty much just disregard everything I don't like. You know, that's that's how it comes across anyways. Um, so I would say Vatican II is, is not exactly what, at least I don't read it that way. Um, and so the second and third example could be uh, examples of legitimate criticisms that were leveled and then action was taken to rectify the situation. That's all well and good. And I think e Paleocrat and I would, would agree on this, that um, it isn't as if you just turn a blind eye and everything's fine. And, and, you know, the Holy Father always does the best thing ever. And isn't it just so great every day? You know, it's, it's all sunshine and rainbows. We're not saying that. We're aware, as are, are the rest of the, the people paying attention, that the church has issues, right? Um, but if you, like Christ-pilled, enjoy my series, you know that the church has always had issues, right? If you like any videos that, that Timothy has done on history, the church has always had issues, right? Or, or the enthusiasm series, for that matter. So just the presence of problems and the recognition of these problems doesn't amount to an R&R position, even if in your mind you think, oh, I, I want to avoid that. I want to resist that. What instead, uh, I would say, especially about those second two examples, is what was the manner in which they were approached? And when a decision was rendered, how was it received? Right? Because there's nothing wrong with taking to your superior, hey, I notice this. This is troubling me. This is, this is, be a, this is a problem for me. Um, and what can we do about that? Can we do anything about that? How should we? I, I don't see anything wrong with that. It, it boils down in a lot of cases to the manner in which these things are done and whether or not the church has already spoken on a particular question. So d does that answer your, your question? Yeah, sure. I, I'm just, um, I want to focus on these real examples, I think, because that that's helpful because I think, I guess my, my sense in, in talking with y'all privately about this is that we, we agree in the principles that that's my sense. Um, and maybe we don't agree, but I, I think we agree on, on these principles. Um, but I think that we disagree when it comes down to these ex particular examples. Um, and I think that I'll, I'll, let it uh, give it over to paleocrat uh, but i wanted to bring forth further examples and that is um in this text if you go uh, it's called defending the faith against present heresies which is a collection of all the writings under the francis pontificate and it has the main documents which are in some way recognizing and resisting actions of pope francis so you have the dubia of the four cardinals you have the theological censures of amoris Laetitia. You have the filial correction 
You also have the open letter to the bishops of the Catholic Church. This is the one that accused Pope Francis of heresy. You have the appeal to the Cardinals of the Catholic Church, which is the the appeal against the, the death penalty change. And then you also have the protest against Pope Francis's sacrilegious acts. That's the Pachamama incident. So then the, the question, if, if I concede that Dono Veritatis is written to theologians, uh, would you say that these various uh, various documents should not have any non-theologians signed on to them? Uh, they're obviously led by theologians. Do you think that prominent laymen should not also sign themselves onto these various instances? Um, and I guess my question would be, would you say that any of these instances are the bad form of R&R or are they good? What are your thoughts on that? I'll stop talking and let Paleo Krat jump in. Go ahead. Well, um, I think that just even in the listing that you gave, I think some of those are obvious okie dokes, right? Like you've got situations where a cardinal, a dubia, that's uh, an orderly situation. Uh, you've got other ones that would be an open letter. Those I'm assuming, uh, I don't know where they were published. My guess, if I had to guess, would be that they were published in mass communication. Um, which was mentioned like three different times uh, in DV with the CDF saying, do not do that. In fact, it's labeled the, the description of using that to pressure the church is one of the characteristics of dissent. Um, in fact, it's almost described as like a lefty tactic of direct action. Um, and I think that a lot of people on the right do the same thing. Um, one of the things in this discussion that, is difficult is that I, I think that recognize and resist, I'll just say what I, my claim on it. I think recognize and resist is a reactionary position by definition. Okay. So they're saying their, their stance is that they recognize and they're resisting. Well, resisting to what, right? They're, re, they're resisting is an, as a reaction to something. So it's reactionary inevitably. Um, and more than just simply being reactionary, it's situational. So the tendency is always, well, what about this situation? What about this situation? What about this situation? It always boils down to that. And it's really difficult to actually pin anybody down on a normative deontological styled ethic regarding what are people supposed to do if they are, if, if we're aware that there is a divine constitution of the church, that that divine constitution is hierarchical, not equalitarian. And if we are to bring our thoughts, our words, and our deeds into complete conformity with that, and if we find that the church, as I think is um, easily demonstrated, that the church for 2,000 years has treated it um, as though there is a different way to admonish, to use the phrase of uh, Pope Gregory the Great, a different way to admonish uh, uh, hierarchs, superiors, and people who are not hierarchs, inferiors. And his pastoral rule goes into great detail on that, hearkening back to the scripture, even the Old Testament, as a primary example with King Saul and David, um, the Old Testament and New Testament regarding admonitions to children to their parents and parents to their children. Um, a, a, um, the idea of... Uh, the even the Old Testament going back to Moses talking about the golden calf and things like that. So it's rooted deeply in scripture. It's rooted in the papal magisterium, uh, papal documents, the church magisterium as a whole. 
repeated over and over with various saints um, with examples. They provide their own about, and I'll use one as just an example because it's a common one for me. Um, in Catholic Controversy, he's he has an, a huge section on can the church err on matters of um, uh, theological significance, like like um, talking about when it's teaching for the universal body. Can you know? Can it make a mistake? In that section, he's talking about the reformers that made that argument that in fact the church had contradicted, the popes had contradicted, the councils had contradicted, and Rome had lost the faith. He brings up three different cardinals as an example to say, if you would have behaved differently and done it like this, here's people who had disagreements, cardinals, all of them, cardinals who disagreed, they brought it to the church in an orderly way with humility and loyalty to the church with a, a genuine desire, not only a desire to change what was going on and to address it, but a, but a willingness to recognize that it's more likely, almost infinitely more likely, that they're incorrect than it is that the church is. That if you have to balance it out between me and my own skills in my brain and the church with the charism, the negative charism of infallibility that's give, preserved by the Holy Ghost, as promised by the head of the church that died for the bride and guides their feet, our our brains are nothing. <laughs> like we all, we're we're nothing on that scale. So it's more likely, which is why, um, even DV in your quotations of this, one of the things that it's promoting is the idea that it's patient and intense um, study into the matter, and that it's done with this willingness, this humility that says, I am going to strive with everything I've got to resolve this. Now, a lot of people will say, look, I gave the I gave Vatican II the benefit of the doubt for a long time. And I say, well, there's another part in DV2 where it says that the church, it's, it is egregious to say that the church can habitually err. If the church has gone on for 60 years and those beliefs and, those, and the liturgy and all these things have gone out for 60 years and not just gone out, but where it's affected catechisms, universities, textbooks, encyclicals, all these orders, everything, everywhere. The idea that that, like, where's the line on habitual? And so when looking at it and looking at it from the one perspective of what's a valid form of resistance, okay, you have a hierarchical structure. There's no doubt that bishops can correct bishops. In fact, there's a quote that I'll, I'll cite, um, that is uh, Leo XIII. And Leo XIII is talking about uh, in Est, is it, would it be Est Sane uh, Molestum? Uh, says to scrutinize, and I just, I just want people to just hear this and just, just think for a second, you're not listening to a Pope you don't like, okay? To scrutinize the actions of a bishop, to criticize them, does not belong to individual Catholics, but concerns only those who in the sacred hierarchy have a superior power. Above all, it concerns the Supreme Pontiff. So he's saying for the individuals, and I think modern Catholics, even the traditional people, maybe in some ways especially, are more secular than they know. They're more naturalistic than they know. And that they that they would hear this kind of thing, and their first reaction is, uh, "He didn't understand the crisis. He didn't understand where I was coming from. He, if he only knew, what would he say then?" He's basing it off of a normative ethic. 
He's basing it, which is a normative. It's derived from an objective. The objective being the divine constitution of the church. The divine constitution of the church, which all the popes say, is no man can change it. No man, nobody, especially not somebody who can't even, in this text, isn't supposed to criticize the pope or the bishops. They are to criticize each other. That gives this model that I'm using and Jake's using predictive power. Because we can then say it's likely that in discussions, number one, that it's going to devolve into situational, this case, this case, this case, this case. But more than that, that, that lay people will use Bishop Athanasius, uh, Apostle Paul going to St. Peter. They'll use examples of them, even Lefebvre, Archbishop Lefebvre. You've got people that are within that structure that completely satisfy that being within at least the hierarchy where it's they have orders compared to everyday people. And I bring that up because we have direction for everyday people and everyday people are to be admonished differently. And the last thing I'll say about it, because I could say a lot is King Saul, King David um, in that, in that text um, of the pastoral rule by uh, Pope St. Gregory, the great, when he goes through this, he's talking about um, that we should be admonished, right? When we consider the faults of superiors, that we don't grow too bold against them. And I'm just quoting straight out. And if their deeds are exceedingly bad, what should you do? Go on Twitter? No. Judge them within yourselves, that constrained by the fear of God, that you still refuse not to bear the yoke of reverence under them. And he says, so you got Saul. And he says, Saul is an, a, an example of a bad ruler. And by the way, just so people know, when he's saying bad, he's saying this. He says that, um, the he says, for prelates ought to know that if they ever perpetrate what is wrong, they're worthy of as many deaths as they transmit examples of perdition to their subjects. He, he later would say that these things are, um, these are exceedingly evil, exceedingly bad. These are a woeful stench, noisome thoughts. He says later, it's obvious evils, extreme and obvious evils. Leo adds to that uh, opinions on point of doctrines worthy of censure. Okay. But here he says, you are not uh, to strike because he says, David, when David had a chance, you had a maniac, King Saul coming after him to kill him, calumniating him left and right. And he says he did not backbite. He says, in, instead, we are to withhold ourselves from the plague of backbiting. I don't know if people can, with a straight face, say that that's anything. I don't know if people have promoted that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we can find a lot of articles addressing this plague in R&R &R right now, because it's a plague. Um, noisome thoughts. He says, David didn't strike because he had a pious mind of a subject. He refrained from backbiting. He did not smite his superior with the sword of his tongue even when they're blamed for imperfection, rightly. And he says, but even if you can't refrain from speaking, it's so bad, however humbly, of some extreme and obvious evil that you cut, as it were, silently the border of his robe. Because even though harmlessly and secretly, in doing that, we derogate the dignity of superiors. We disfigure, as it were, the garment of the king who is set over us. And he says that we're not murmuring against these people alone, but against the Lord. And he uses Exodus 16. And the last part, he says, you should not smite them with the sword of your mouth. 
I would include texting in that and tweeting in that, social media and YouTube in that. Um, uh, and it says that when even if that happens, it says it says that we need to um, uh, even in the least, if the tongue slips into censure when it's offended against the power that's set over it, that we would dread the judgment against ourselves of God by whom it was set over it. And it says that we need to, to be afflicted with um, uh, penitence, that we need to be depressed by the affliction of penitence to the end that it may return to itself. And when it offended against the power set over it, that it would dread judgment against it. So we have examples and we have examples of, of hierarchs. We have examples of priests. We have examples of all these different things. And we have admonitions, admonitions and directives, warnings. And we have saintly examples, biblical examples, papal examples, doc doctors of the church, saints over and over and over that provide not just an example for us to say, well, I can do it like this because nobody's doing nobody's doing like that anyway. Right. Like St. Catherine. I don't know people writing to popes privately like that or St. Paul speaking to him in in a setting that's ultimately a private they're at a dinner. Essentially, it's not he's not writing a bull. He's not writing an encyclical. There's no council at stake, but they're applying all these things to that. And that's not the same thing. And they're not abiding by the, the clear admonitions that have been laid out specifically for lay people. And it's so bad that even and I say this respectfully, even people like Phaser sometimes hinted this idea that there's simply no nothing out there. And I'm like, <laughs> we've got we've got quotes coming out the wazoo. And I said, you and in fact, that it's a chain. And so I would leave that for that. And by the way, Father uh, Savonarola, if I'm pronouncing it properly, I forget. Um, he he was actually extremely, go to a Catholic encyclopedia. St. Philip Neri was right. St. Philip Neri uh, prayed and joined them in a vigil and prayed that his theology would not be condemned. But when he was informed that he was going to be uh, chastised and laid bare for his disobedience, he stood by that verdict. And later, when he was under pressure and he was wrongfully being come after, what did he do? Humility, loyalty. He never once went and set up a rival altar. He never told people to occupy churches. He never did anything that would get him in trouble. And guess what? Just like Athanasius, just like St. Catherine, just like all those people in King David, he won. So don't go after, don't use that guy. <laughs> you don't want to use that cat as your example on what to do. Because that guy did not fare well. His theology did. Maybe because of the prayers of the guy who knew the theology and your actions, your thoughts, your words, and your deeds all had to be aligned with the constitution of the church. Yeah, I, as I said, I don't think that uh, we disagree in the principles. I think that there's other principles that it seems that are not being included in your presentation. Um, I'm wondering if St. Gregory or Leo Thirteenth also commented in that context on the fact that King David publicly rebuked King Saul after he cut his robe. And he said things like the Lord rebuke the Lord, revenge me of thee. He said to King Saul and King Saul addressing him as father. King Saul then repented based on what King, King David said publicly to rebuke him. And I, I, I know that we can all think of examples of, bad R&R &R people or whatever. And as I said, I count myself as one of them. 
but I, I'm I'm comparing this to these documents that I've laid out and these various examples that I've laid out, which to me seem to be the steel man argument. Um, and I would really see a, a great parallel between King David's addressing King Saul as father and rebuking him in a very pious manner with, for example, the filial correction and the ways that these pious men of God address the Holy Father in, a, in the most pious way possible. Um, do, is there an addressing of that aspect of King David as well? You want to take that follow you? So, yeah, let me, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I think, yes, the short answer is yes. There, there are instances where people can do that. And it and it's uh, subject to the conditions that would be laid out not only in Donum Veritatis but again as as we've said from you know, well for a long time and so I don't think uh, well I'll say that Tim I agree also in principle that we three seem to agree on the basic principles but what I what I would take issue with is uh, ascribing to the general R&R position, this uh, sort of like a, well, these guys are okay because see, our principles say it's allowed. And if, if we're erring on the side of being too cautious, as it were, then I think the other side of the argument is too brash, right? It's, it's too much. Well, I, I submit in piety. Um, doggone that Francis, he did this, 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 but I'm, I'm super pious. You know, I, I have sincerely held difficulties, uh, that the church hasn't addressed that gives me license. And I think that, uh, that that's an error in the other direction. And so, although you, you may not be doing that, um, I don't think that we can say that most of the time, that's not how it's done. And when we find examples like that filial correction, you mentioned where it is couched in exceedingly reverent and pious language. I think I know the document you're talking about. If not, um, then I might have to modify my comments. But um, yeah, where, where there are real difficulties and they're taken to the proper authorities, the people that can actually have this discussion, and it's done uh, with due submission, well, that, that's, that's like baked in to what we're saying. Like we're, we're absolutely allowing for that because the church allows for that, right? It's in Donum Veritatis and it's in the tradition that uh, theologians can and in fact have the duty to make known the issues that they come across. The problem, again, that we see, um, and I don't think we're alone in this, but we're, we're maybe, Jeremiah is probably the loudest one about at it about it at this time loudest. But, no i, <laughs> I am well, the loudest one yeah. <laughs> you're you uh, <laughs> uh the the problem that we're seeing is that you've got myriad um trad apostolates and commentators and uh mostly laymen right mostly not theologians uh and when they are theologians they're not they're not seeming to be very pious uh, at least in, in my view, who who sort of disregard all of the rest of it and just sort of, I'm going to make my camp over here where it says I can, I can disagree and I don't have to have a fundamental openness or I don't have to have a, you know, due piety and, and reverence and I don't have to run my critiques through the proper channels. The book you held up earlier, um, uh, 
I forget the title of it. Yeah, defending the, the faith against the collection of heresies. Yep. There we go. So that being a collection of other things, I would want to ask, well, were those other things run through the normal hierarchical channel? Like did that, if it was written by a layman, did he go to his pastor? And if he didn't get a satisfactory answer, did he take someone else with him? Or did he appeal to the bishop in a private conversation? Did he go to the apostolic nuncio? Like th there is a channel. You know, if, if you don't get um, a meeting with one priest, can you go meet with a different one? Or instead, did you write a book about it, right? And I don't mean that book in particular, since that's a collection of other writings. But, you know, did you, did you blog about it? Did you make a video about it? Did you slander the Holy Father after Mass with your buddies? That, that would count as public, I think, to some degree. Um, so again, I, I would say that, you know, we, we are in agreement on the principles, but I think the disagreement is where do you emphasize? Do you emphasize, hey, I, I need to be in a spirit of um, receiving from the church. And if I notice difficulties, the presumption is, is that I'm wrong and that I need to seek to understand. Or is the presumption that hey, anytime I notice something, as long as I'm humble, I can speak out against it. And I, I think those two attitudes are really the, the difference here with uh, well-intentioned people who can disagree on the practicals, right? We can, we can have a different opinion on whether this or that individual case is done well or was justified in the first place or something. Because, uh, like I said, I think the three of us are mostly of the similar mind on it. But outside of this small group, I don't think people are thinking the way paleocrats thinking. Uh, and that, that's just my perception, but yeah, let me, let yeah, me, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, let me give a, a few comments and then paleocrat. If you want to, we got seven minutes left. So if you want to finalize, I'm writing it down so that I don't perfect. Get perfect. Well, yeah. first of all, I wanted to address, um, the, the phrase habitually error in general Mary of Tatis, which you, which you made mentioned of, um, but the issue is, which I think you're making a good point, and I agree with you. Um, but at the same time, there's also a whole swath of magisterial teaching from 1794 all the way to 1958, which takes a definite stance regarding modernism, uh, liberalism, etc., which at face value seems to be reversed at Vatican II. And Joseph Ratzker called it the counter syllabus. Gotti Misbes is the counter syllabus. So, what about the habitual airing of? that magisterium as well and that's that's the issue that many people are trying to raise here is that we can't we're having issues with taking the part being faithful to the prior magisterium and the current magisterium and there seems to be some disconnect on some issues namely liberalism for example um and so that's a two-edged sword that you have to be consistent and also apply the prior habitual uh, you know because we, we seem to be uh, calling into question if there's that was a habitual error basically um the other aspect is you mentioned that uh the phrase that they should not turn to the mass media but it is clear from cardinal ratziger's promulgation that he says quote we have not excluded all kinds of publication nor have we closed him the theologian up in suffering end quote um and this is understood by uh william may and avery dulles and others that 
the uh, the pious publication, public publication of critiques and th that sort of thing in the, the, the example that I'm giving in this book um, is not the mass media. And I, I mean, obviously, the <clears throat> obvious example that comes to mind is Hans Kuhn, who really worked the media and he was just pushing, putting pressure on the church using the media. Um, so it, it seems clear that Dona Veritatis is not excluding every single form of publication that's public. It's 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 making reference to a particular form of that. And I, I guess I would say that um, your uh, y'all's quotations from St. Gregory Leo XIII uh, can be reconciled and synthesized with the other statements regarding uh, rebuking a superior. St. Basil says that a superior who prevents you from fulfilling the commandments of God should be excoriated by the faithful. Uh, St. Thomas says that if the faith were endangered, a subject ought to rebuke his prelate even publicly. And I, finally, I want to quote uh, in response to your quote of Leo XIII. I would agree that a layman should not be making any, you know, scrutinization of a bishop, but we don't need to be a theologian to respond if a bishop is doing a you know public act or speech of heresy, which we teach to our children, which our first communicates understand that that's heresy. Um, there and I re I make reference here to the document by um, the International Theological Commission on the Census Fidei, and this was from very recent, I think it was the two thousands, which says this quote: "Alerted by their Census Fidei, individual believers may deny assent even to the teaching of legitimate pastors if they do not recognize in that teaching the voice of Christ, the Good Shepherd." End quote. Um, so I guess my thought would be just be to reconcile and synthesize what you're saying and with these other quotations and this other parts of the tradition yeah um to create a a holistic disposition of faithful piety uh in the sense of the the tradition in the canon law it says that the holy see is judged by no no one except in the case of heresy and that's sort of the that's always the exception. Like when you, when you think of the filial piety of children to their parents or hus uh, wives to their husbands, or, you know, we're always going to be submissive, except in the case where that, that authority is not even submissive to God himself. That's mm -hmm. when, that's the only case where there can be some sort of dissent or resistance, but that's my final word. Yeah. Jeremiah, do you want to give your final word? Yeah. We got two more. You, let me just, yeah. just real quick. Let me, this will be the last thing, and then I'm going to drink my coffee and enjoy you guys uh, hashing out the ending here. Um, the Holy See is judged by no one except in case of heresy. Does it go on to say that at that point, the Holy See is judged by everyone in any manner whatsoever? You know, like, I think there's more to it than that. That's all. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, I, I want to just say this real quick about the census fide about this is that um, sometimes this is brought up and I, I don't have it in the highlighted section here. So I feel kind of bad about that. But um, all right here, the argument from that almost always arises in a matter where it's pitted against the magisterium uh, in this way. It's treated like kind of like an escape hatch um, and it's Pandora's box because it goes through and says it's not just the conscience of the person it's also not based on what they think is immediately evident. So they may say, well, I don't, I don't see how that's possible that that's the case. 
Like, I don't mean to be rude, but that's a big whoop de doo from the magisterium. They're like, that is irrelevant. You, if you, that's, you can't have a knee jerk reaction because it also says you can't do things in an untimely manner with that. Um, but more than that, it, it says that there's an indissoluble bond between the census fide and the guidance of God's people by the magisterium and his pastors. The magisterial interventions, even when it might seem that they limit the freedom of theologians. So it's a one way street on that. Um, that those things are there to serve to guarantee the unity in the truth of the Lord. Um, and I, and so, but when you I'll address these things, I wrote them down, just receiving. I do not say that. Um, that's kind of like when the accusation that I say that you don't see evil. I'm like, I just quoted where they'd be deserving of as many deaths as they have uh, shown ill and evil about them. Evident, obvious evils, um, terrible things. So I, that's out of the way. It's a matter of intense and patient study. These are quotes from the document. Humility and openness and going through proper channels. In paragraph 32, they oppose general opposition to this. I think that certain public statements made by steel men, popular R&R guys, uh, that it is in fact a general opposition, even to the general vision of the church. And that's why rather than you know, getting a letter, let's say Traditionis Custodes or any letter about it and and anticipating that there will be like a period of time before someone says something. Instead, you can bank on the idea that it's going to be the topic of almost all the main trad YouTube channels. It's going to be on all the main trad news sources and news sites because they're on the same loop to loop 24 seven news cycle. Be first to the story news cycle thing going on as the secular world. Dissent, models of protest, which find their way in a paragraph 33, um, says that they're inspired by political st type stuff. I think Occupy the Churches is a perfect example of that, um, even in the name. Um, and evangelization, last point. Um, it says that the main purpose of doing any kind of correction at all is, for one, um, first of all, for yourself, you might be wrong. Okay, so you, you're, you're searching for clarity and you're grappling with it in a proper way. Secondly, that if the church does need to change its position on a non-irreformable point, that you're participating in that in a fraternal way with loyalty, humility, and going in the proper channels, but also that it's evangelization, um, the point of it ultimately being that. Um, the problem is so many R&R people have focused almost all their attention on evangelizing the magisterium itself, evangelizing the Pope, evangelizing the bishops of the world, evangelizing churches that they don't even they're not even in communion with them anymore they don't they re, so many of them refuse to go they will never go to the Novus Ordo they completely reject it they cast suspicion on it all the time that's their general position and it's unsurprising then that in their apostolates it seems like if they're trying to evangelize anybody that they're really trying to evangelize fellow Catholics um and it's a problem I think and one of the reasons why in my apostolate we don't do that we, we teach the tradition, we teach how to be pious, we teach about heresy, schism, enthusiasm, um, all those sort of cults, all that sort of stuff, so that we know what to avoid and what to do. But we don't target particular people, much less the Holy Roman Pontiff, because he's the center point of unity. And if we don't have him, to where, to where do we go to settle our disputes? How would we not end up in the same boat as Protestants and any other group out there in the world whose ecclesiology says, go back to the scrolls, go back to the Bible, go back to the scrolls. 
instead of take your issue to the church. Because if you take it there, when the church makes a verdict, if you don't submit, it doesn't say if you don't submit, you're okay if you have a pretty dope argument. It says if the church makes a verdict and you do not submit, heathen. And that's why St. Francis de Sales closes out the way I will here by saying that if anyone wishes to speak to him further on that, he has nothing to do with that because he, he must, in fact, obey the Lord and simply consider them a heathen. Excellent. Thank you, Paleocrat. Thank you, Fowler. Uh, we've we've hashed it out, hashed it out a bit, and I'm sure this will continue uh, on and off the air. So uh, thank you for the considerations. And uh, I certainly will take these considerations into prayer for myself. And uh, so I welcome all of the comments from readers and or listeners. Um, we all certainly need to be better all of us need to be better and uh, more pious and, and best we can in the difficulties that we face and nobody wants to undermine the church and we need to realize that what our actions are leading to so let's let's com commend all this to our lady and ask her to help us uh present this this pious uh our pious interactions and that uh, we may promote true piety among our brethren and the and the faithful uh fowler can you uh finish the hail mary for me you got it. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Victory. Pray for us. St. Joseph, terror of demons. Pray, pray for us. St. Anthony of the desert. Pray for us. Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jesus Amen. is King. Amen.